0: Welcome, everybody, to the Hilliard Beacon Audio Companion. This is number 17, by my reckoning, and it is July 27th of 2023. We are joined uh, by series regular Kevin Corvo. Good afternoon, listeners. And uh, new guest uh, and Hilliard standby, uh, Paul Lambert. Paul, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Jordan.
0: Glad to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Paul I uh, well, first let me say right up top, we had expected to have uh, former Mayor Roger Reynolds on this show as well, but uh, I was just told by Kevin that his wife experienced a fall in the home recently, and Roger is going to be uh, sitting this one out. And we just wanted to pass along our best wishes, of course, to Phyllis and the whole family, and uh, hope she gets better soon. And Roger's uh, home with her, yeah. What's that? the family. Roger's home with me. Good, and good. He'll be back on other shows he, uh, Oh, for he, sure, he seems he, uh, to really uh, like he it He does, All he, right. he, uh, he said that Good uh, Paul, let's get uh, right to you, sir uh, I know you primarily from my donut shop <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you're known primarily to the people of Hilliard As someone who's taken an interest in local politics And really local systems as a whole You know, you've been through the school board, you've been into the township government now for a couple of years. you played a part in in city uh, governance and the development of community plans and various feedback over the years. Um, What has been your experience over the eras of Hilliard and how you've kind of grown within Hilliard in those roles?
1: Yeah, so uh, my wife and I came to Hilliard back in 1979. We built a house in... Gulfy Woods, um, and uh, it, it was mainly a choice of where was a good place to build that would be a convenient drive for my wife and I before we had kids, and Gulfy Woods is like halfway between her place of employment, which was downtown, and my place of employment, which was um, in Upper Arlington, and um, so we built a house there and you know commenced um, you know growing in our careers, and I can tell you those those days I didn't. Give a crap about local government. I, I wanted to be not bothered by local government. Mm-hmm. I wanted to to live a life where you know I could concentrate on my career and um, and my family, which you know we started there, um, and didn't feel like um, you know I I had any interest in or wanted to put any energy into local stuff. So been around for been around the community for a long time, um, but I used to have a sign in my office, and I hope the uh, it makes this makes it past the censor. <laughs> that, uh, non existent sense. So Go <laughs> right ahead. So, there's three <laughs> kinds of people in the world there's people who make things happen, there's people who watch things happen, and there are people who bitch. Mm-hmm. And my experience mm-hmm. is that it's the latter set which is by far the largest. Mm-hmm. Um, second with the, the people who watch. I, I shouldn't say it that what the, the ones you hear the most of are the last mm-hmm. set, um, and probably the silent majority that second set is probably the, the reality the largest. And um, I, I guess my, my frame of mind is I, I definitely didn't want to be that in that third set, and that as I became aware of more issues of a local nature, I thought I can I should get engaged and find out um, you know if I can contribute to solutions rather than being a complainer. So
0: well, I think what that fits nicely into is just that idea of what you want to have in government and in local systems is an environment in which people like yourself at that earlier point in your career are free to pursue their own horizon, are free to develop their own business, their own set of skills, their own goals for life, whatever it may be. And I think the goal of good governance and and, and smooth functioning governance is to create that environment for as many people as you possibly can who live in your jurisdiction, your town, your your boundaries essentially. So to find yourself at different points deciding to get engaged, I think maybe consciously or subconsciously, you're trying to say, like, this is getting either too much impeding people's ability to develop their own horizon, as I said, or I think there are better ways that this government can be engaged to help people pursue those horizons. What do you think of that?
1: Um, that's a pretty heady way to put things. For well, me it was know. it was pretty uh
0: I stare at donut though, all day, Paul. <laughs> I have deep thoughts, what can I tell you? Deep thoughts. Um, you know,
1: for me it was a lot more pedestrian how the engagement happened. That was, you know, looking at my property tax bill and saying why is this thing so big and why does it keep going up mm. and um, and that started me into the process of tracing the uh, the economics which you know you don't get very far into the economics until you get to the politics of the, of the local environment and that's really what my my lead into it but um, you know as I've gotten older and, and perhaps more philosophical myself about these issues I one of the things that has become very evident is that the, the greatest, um, enemy to democracy is apathy. That um, I think, you know, if you go back and look at, at the empires, and this is an American empire. If, if you look at empires that have collapsed, it's probably because the people have become apathetic. Um, and in that space created by apathy, you end up with corruption. Um, and so you end up with a corrupt government that's no longer effective and doesn't serve the people. It serves its special interests. In.
0: And I thought people lose more and more faith in it, accelerating declines. Right. And I think you're pointing to something that I, I believe firmly as well, is that there, it's an apathy generated by uh, repeatedly having your democratic face pushed into the curbs of yeah. uh, you know an unresponsive government. Yeah, so go no, ahead, I mean, Sorry, I didn't mean to break up the train there. No, no,
1: no you're fine. Um, <laughs> so um, I read a book a couple of years ago given to me by my good friend Omar Tarazi. Um, called the Fourth Turning and um, it suggests that there are there's these four stages of a uh, civilization and that they just go through these four stages in a continuous cycle and um, uh, some of them are on, they're like a sine curve, some of them are on the upswing and some of them are not and um, the argument, or at least of this author, is that we're in the Fourth Turning and the Fourth Turning is the one that um, there tends to be chaos and revolution and wow you know I hope we're not we're not there yet
0: sure um, but there are I mean there's any number of takes along every spectrum of. there's another book I read recently uh, The Four Futures by Peter Freys and it kind of looks at That type of framing But it just kind of takes a a broader trajectory And says, okay, given this range of inputs It's likely that this will be the outcome Given this range of inputs It's likely this will be the outcome Kind of taking it through different modes of production And things of that nature Uh, As we head into a future dominated increasingly by troubling news of climate uh, disruption 100 degree waters in Florida And that type of thing And, And you kind of look at what our options are locally and how we can get involved, either we can accept that we're in some kind of inexorable fourth turning, or we can take our turn at the tiller and and make our best efforts to synthesize an analysis of what's in front of us and make our best uh, and most recent moves forward. So, you know, I appreciate the role we've taken in uh, moving that ball forward for our community, because I think as you move through those different levels of government, school boards, township now, And seeing how all that has to work together. Let's talk a little bit about that and a little bit about your timeline that you brought with you.
1: Yeah, Um, it's a topic I love to talk about is this notion of collaborative government. Um, I I didn't grow up in Ohio but I've been here ever since I I came here to go to Ohio State. I grew up in West Virginia and there aren't things like townships. There are are cities and counties and there's the state. Um, I say that you know, recognizing that the population of the entire state of West Virginia is about the same as Franklin County so it's mm-hmm. it just doesn't need you know the same kind of levels of government but um, this this way governance has been divided in Ohio creates some interesting um, interactions and intentions um, that we definitely had here in Hilliard like I say Roger and I could probably have some great conversations um, about that but um, you know, we have, I, I say, we have, in essence, three governments, three overlapping governments, political subdivisions mm-hmm. in the language of the, the Constitution and the revised code. Uh, but those three overlapping primary governments are the city, the township, and the school district, each independent, each with their own revenue sources. Um, you know, back many years ago, the school district here used to be called side of Darby Local Schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it still that when you started school, Kevin?
0: It was. Well... Mm-hmm. It might have changed about a couple years before that. It was
1: like in the eighties, um, I think maybe before you, but it was uh, called Side of Darby Local because mm-hmm. it went from Derby Creek
0: to the Sider River mm-hmm. and
1: from, you know, nearly Dublin to you know nearly Columbus and I started a
0: school in nineteen seventy five. I think it was still a Side of Darby then. Yeah, I think it was still I don't up. know what your change. When we <coughs> built our house it was still uh oh, and it was still.
1: still. And um and so somebody the school board during that period decided it was a better thing to call it Hilliard City Schools, and ever since then, people have been confused about what role the city of Hilliard has in the governance of the schools. The answer is zero. (laughs) Um, It's it's a separately elected board, separate management, separate revenue sources. Separate,
0: almost, taxing initiative, where they can get things placed on, right? Yeah, completely separate. People getting pulled in different directions, citizens getting conflicting information, potentially, if, you know, certain, certain... Of course, of course one of it. the
1: big ones is you hear people say, why don't we send all the Columbus kids that go to Hillary schools back to Columbus? And um, this timeline we have touches on that a little bit. But, um, and then you have the township. And, you know, in our community, the primary role of the township, There, is, there is, you know, hunks of parcels around here, mainly uh, you along the Treview mm-hmm. Road um, and, you know, where Timberbrook is down there and then, you know, well, so we have edge that
0: edge. Dublin Road development as well right. that was Columbus annexed recently. That Yeah. And so there's these
1: edges, you know, and along the side of the river that are in the township only. And then there's also the big part of the township that is overlaid by the city. Mm-hmm. And then you've got school district that's the biggest of all, you know, overlays. 100,000
0: plus. Yeah.
1: And so, um, which, by the way, creates an interesting issue for people who want to run for school board because after. It goes over hundred thousand. You have to have three hundred signatures. Oh there. man, yeah, that's a lot of work. Oh, yeah, and um, but um, and they're all separate. And so I say that those three governments in our community each have a role to play, um, and so they're independent and interdependent. And so you know, the schools run the schools. That's what they do. The township besides taking care of those few parcels that are unincorporated runs the fire department for the entire community and also Brown Township. Um, you know an enormously expensive enterprise with you know 100 professional firefighters and millions of dollars worth of equipment and so on um, so it has its you know revenue source to support that and then you have the the, uh, the city um, one of the important roles that we know the city does you know they do the police department huge role um, they take care of the roads they take care of the parks um, there's there's a variety of things that the city does one of the most important things that they have the exclusive responsibility for its economic development. And so the other two bodies, the school district and the um, township, which need commercial revenue sources to help take the, the funding burden off of homeowners, the only one of those three entities that can create that funding source is the city. and but the city also has the power to divert the new revenue generated by that source away from the schools in the township through TIFs and abatements and all that kind of stuff. And um, during, particularly during the uh, administration of Mayor Schoenhardt, that was used in a big way. Uh, It was used during um, Roger Reynolds' administration too, but they really picked up on it during the Schoenhardt uh, administration. And so it meant that you know, as new development was happening, it was being used to actually fund the city. One of the things about TIFs that a lot of people didn't know, a lot of people don't even know about TIFs, but one of the things that they didn't know about TIFs is that they were created to fund infrastructure. Um, the ideas came about, the, and they used nationwide. But it'd be think of a city like Youngstown that is just steel mills that got leveled, and you got Lots all these light. got all these brownfields. And the idea was no developer is gonna be incented to go in and. You take a site that has steel mill on it. It doesn't have any utilities.
0: There's no water. There's no sewage. no electricity. You got to undo the damage, redo the full investment, and right. then overturn the damage done by the decades of an right. abandoned steel mill sitting there. Right. And so you think about a city like
1: Youngstown. They they don't have the wherewithal because their main income source is gone too. Um, the developer's saying, "I'm not going to pour a bazillion dollars into making this brownfield into something I can build houses and shopping centers and stuff on." Um, And so the tip idea was, okay, what we're gonna do is, um, if you go build that stuff, we'll take the property tax revenue that you pay and use it to um, reimburse you for the cost of building that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that's in general good for the community. If it takes 10 years or whatever to pay off the developer for doing that, at the end of the 10 years, you've got a better community, That's, that's that's kind of the theory. Well, what happened in you know affluent suburbs like Hillary is that they were simply just using the TIF to, to fund the city um, because it's like the last sentence in the TIF statute say um, if there's any unused funding for the infrastructure projects. it hello the tip, to the general fund. It flows into the general fund. And um, so um, it felt really good. That's, that's a big lead in to, it felt really good um, I think it was 2015 that there was Annie Teeter and I on the school board, Chuck Buckler Larry Ehrman on the township um, board. Issue nine. Uh, yeah, issue nine happened. Um, and we had uh, Les on the uh, city council. Um, we put together the Keep oh Your Beautiful pack mm-hmm. and did <coughs> issue nine and said, um, we understand the tips on commercial stuff is probably necessary, because you have to compete with other suburbs, but please don't put tips on residential stuff and so that's so what happened with issue nine past seventy two twenty eight.
0: so then <laughs> following up on that a couple years later in charter language cleanup they undo a lot of that in that they allow for as long as the school board and the township each independently sign off on the application of a tiff it can be used for residential purposes mm-hmm. and I have to say, to your original frustration that made you enter government in the first place, that is where the Swiss cheese blanket of uneven taxation and distribution of those taxes comes in, because there are other programs tied to property taxes, and to slice out 30-year increments of that on what is essentially a developer-led proposition, where they get paid up front, (laughs) uh, it's... It's risky. And in a lot of people's opinion, like you'd have said, issue nine was a culmination of over dependence on a mechanism that was cutting too deeply into some of the deepest held fabrics of the community public education and uh, emergency service provision. Mm-hmm. So I think people put their foot down there, but I do regret that it's been overturned and rolled back in that way and to a much uh, more uh, pointed point under differing. Democratic conditions differing, democratic participation, and differing uh, framing of the issue. It was not cleanup, that was substantive rollback.
1: Yeah, well, maybe uh, let me get some more background on that. Is that um, so? By the time that uh, the the charter cleanup process happened, Andy had uh, become, I think he may have even been council president at that point, Um, and so. now we had two folks, Larry and, and uh, Andy. And uh, Omar and Pete, and you know, I don't wanna try to paint what kind of political position they're taking today, but we generally across the three boards had aligned folks. In fact, when I was president of the school board during that period, I restarted the intergovernmental meetings where the leadership of each of the three mm-hmm. boards gets together once a month and we're still doing that that needs um, to happen and, and 100% leaders.
0: agree yeah. with that that's so critical yeah. and I think just let me toss this in real quick do you want to have any comment on that dollar parcel that the township fire department got because of those kind of relationships with perhaps true point and those trade-offs yeah
1: uh, well I What you're talking about, of course, is at the corner um, where the rec center is going to go. It's actually where the new S curve and the roundabout is going to be. The the city granted a piece of land to the township to build a fire department there. Um, And so we're working through all the funding to do that. That, That's that, you know, there's no such thing as a free launch. Yeah, that building's not going to build itself. I know exactly what you mean by that. It's likely to be a... Uh, not only is the building itself going to be, you know, probably in the ten million dollar range. About ten million dollars yeah. for
0: Station eighty-four. That's what he said because you quoted him. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I, well, I spoke. I spoke to the township trustees. I, sp- I was in their meeting when they had the architect there. Really, so Kevin? To. to <laughs> <the discussion. laughs> but um,
1: you know, we have to run utilities to it, and just the sewer and the water lines over to that place is going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, as it turns out. So it's it's not free but it's it's um it, it's it's a good it's, it's a nice step
0: well and to your point uh also and probably as a result of some of those intergovernmental meetings a lot of that came into focus around the library and what to do to recruit the hickory chase site and how to turn that from a disaster into a, a positive turnaround
1: yeah and um so this is another example it's one that you know probably people don't know as well is that when we uh, built uh, memorial middle school um, I, I won't go into the whole waterline issue out there because that's, that's still annoying to me, but um, the <laughs> It's always the most mundane things. <laughs> the, the city uh, was going to charge us standard TAP fees um, to connect into the waterline, and oh, by the way, the school district paid to construct. Um, and uh, we worked a deal, again, I think it's maybe been when I was uh, president of the school board, but whether or not that's true, we actually swapped that little hunk of land that's on Wayne Street that's now a parking lot for the city. Yeah. right. That was school property that you know, you know it was looking, way out in the boonies. We swapped that little piece of property for the connectees into the <laughs> middle school and stuff. I so You know, we've been doing trying to do stuff like that. Sure. Um, so, uh, but anyway, when it came time to do the charter cleanup, um, Omar, I'm not sure what role he had on council at the time. He may have been a vice president, or um, I'm not sure what role he had. But he called me and he said would you support changing the language for 12.10 in the city charter so that we can use tips on residential with the permission of the school board and the township. And um, the idea was, and you've seen it now, is that many new developments that are happening uh, have a residential component. Mm-hmm. You know, True Points being uh, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest example of it lately. So um, I, I said yeah, I, I think if that's the, getting commercial development is crucial to our community. Otherwise, everybody's property taxes are just gonna keep exploding if we don't get more and more commercial development. By the way, to tell you how extreme that can be, um, what a benefit it can be, uh, the guy who is now the um, superintendent of New Albany Schools, his name is Michael Sawyer, um, used to be the superintendent of Perry Schools up in Perry County, where the Perry Nuclear Plant is. And the property taxes from the Perry nuclear plant paid for them to build a $200 million dollar campus up there in one of the poorest school districts in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and these these few school districts around the state that haven't had these big power plants in them uh, benefit enormously from the commercial benefit. And um, you know, if you have a big GM plant, whatever it is, those things can go a long way towards funding the school district. So uh, getting a big commercial development like, uh, like True Point um, going to be is pretty important for all three governments if we have to um if it has to have a residential component to make it work um okay and if we think that the incentives that we have to give because remember the the developers they they shop around the 270 and if they don't like the deal they get in here they go to new albany they're making a circuit yeah they're looking for business they look for it so we're competing for that and so if we have to give the developer some incentives to have them come here so that uh, if not today, that then at some point they will be, you know, big com- contributors to the, to the fabric of the community. In the case of the, these developments, it'll be a huge contributor from the uh, income tax basis for the city, um, and it has a commercial component, then uh, let's go see what we could do. But because of that language in the city charter, the township for the first time ever got a seat at the table and got the negotiated deal. And so um, other deals like that, the township gets completely left out. And in this deal, the township got a
0: revenue flow from it. So That's it's not as bad as, well, no, as probably well, appearing. You're, um, I, I do, I'm regularly a hand these <laughs> in these aspects, <laughs> but you're right to point out uh, that this is, if we believe in it, like the long-term project that the country is, and that the states are, and that in these communities are, we have to believe in it as a, a spectrum of progress. And you know, to have the township have that seat at the table, and I was, I was saying like, oh, you know, there was a city trade-off um, in that they gave that parcel for a dollar. But I have to point out this as well. It's important that the city recognizes that you can't overburden these services by asking them to cover such huge geographic areas. And adding one right there around what they hope is, you know, another huge pillar of the community for another extended period of time, draws investment, draws settlement, draws people building and all sorts of things. I think it shows that right kind of foresight along that continuum of participation of these different players at the table, so. Yeah. You know, and that's a testament to the, the work you put in. Like you said, you, you get these meetings going once a month and then they start to perpetuate mm-hmm. and, and improve the whole environment.
1: Yeah. Um, and by the way, when talking about that firehouse, one of the uh, interesting aspects of that is that it plays into a, um, an agreement with the city of Columbus to support the um, new sugar farms development. But the sugar farms development, even though it's been annexed into Columbus, is still in Norwich Township. And um, so they'll be paying the Orange Township fire taxes, um, and for the tax the and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, um, but that deal was structured in such a way that the revenue that comes from it can only be used for brick and mortar investments. So we can't buy fire trucks, and we can't pay firefighters, which are two you know, firefighters and the trucks. Growing renewable need to renewable
0: need renewed budget costs. Are, so
1: all we we can't yeah. use it for operations. So all we can use it for the building. So. If we weren't building the building, we'd have no way to use that revenue stream as it turns out. So um, it plays into that. That's gonna be you know 700 homes that, that you know, we have responsibility for mm-hmm. providing uh, emergency services to.
0: So that kind of gets me around to one of the last sections and maybe we can go through where some of these bits and pieces fit in on a timeline, but you were very influential in my learning about a couple of these key agreements that have structured development flowing from Columbus and uh, flowing into Hilliard and surrounding suburbs. I think uh, most people know about the white flight of the 70s. I think a lot of people might have heard the terms win-win. People might have seen a little bit of complaining about water taps and availability. But you've got a lot of insight into this, so why don't you kind of orient us along that that spectrum of of things?
1: Yeah, there's... uh as I was telling you earlier, I, I loved a show that was on PBS back maybe in the 90s or, or so that was called Connections. Back but when the
0: attention span was a little better for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Before
1: YouTube. Hey. And, uh, the, um And he explored how things came to be, primarily technologies, how certain things came to be today and what were the driving forces, and they were often very different than what you suspect. And um, so I, I put together. I started doing this research, and a lot of this work I, I, I shouldn't take credit for. It's done by a guy named Gregory Jacobs, who wrote a book called Getting Around Brown. Who I I think that book is mandatory. Brown V. Board, board of Education. That's what it's about. But it's the book is 100 percent about Central Ohio, and mm-hmm. um, and it, it's really where most of this stuff comes from. So. Um, all right, let me just kind of rip through this. Um, yeah, fire away. From when your mic,
0: you know, this was. you know I'm going to check the time on the recording. Please go. Yeah, you know, this is
1: the forest in the middle. <laughs> you know, the great, the great uh, Black Swamp and all that um, back in. You know, so, um, probably a, a place to, to start is that as Columbus began, you know, was named the capital city. You know, back in um, 1812, and um, soon afterwards, the development of the Ohio Erie canals and canals all over the you know, the nascent country was starting to develop and the, the Ohio Erie Canal ran from Lake Erie down to the Ohio River, mm-hmm. did not run through Columbus, it ran east of Columbus through towns like Groveport and Canal Winchester and so on. Mm-hmm. But there was a, the canals need a, a, a constant supply of water and that's the reason we have things like Buckeye Lake and uh, Grand Lake St. Mary's and so on, but they supplied waters to the canals back then. One of the water sources was the side of the river and so there was a connector run from downtown Columbus. Um, kind of parallel to the side of the river, but it connected um, south of the city down towards Groveport Canal, Winchester to provide water for the canal. And it also provided a way that they could bring canal boats into the city, so kind of a double win. But, you know, it didn't take very long for the railroads to come along, and the railroads kind of wiped out the canals hmm. as an right. economic mechanism. And so what began to happen is, uh, probably what was happening from the time the canal was built, is that they started dump, people started just dumping their sewers into the canal. And uh, I read one account that said there was a period, you know, during uh, even the first part of the 20th century, where downtown Columbus was pretty stinky um, with this kind of open sewer thing. And so, one of the things that happened, um, you, know, you know, in the first part of the 20th century was, uh, as factories and so on began to develop in the, uh, you know, kind of the industrial North post Civil War, um, after the war, there began to be a migration of people from the South into those factory cities. And, um, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, and the, and the joke used to be that in West Virginia they teach you the three R's—reading, writing, and, write, and then Route 23. <laughs> get on that, and head <laughs> get to get on that, and head to yeah. Columbus and Detroit, and all the places in between, and, um, and get a job. And so, you know, Columbus today has a huge um, roots in from the Appalachian regions, um, and also uh, folks that were, in essence, freed slaves that came up from uh, from the Deep South after <coughs> the Civil War, and so. Um, It kind of worked to make Columbus an industrial base. Um, And there used to be, you know, the the railroads were huge here. There was steel here. Uh, If you go back, even when I first moved to Columbus, um, you know, you had the GM plant. You had Buckeye downtown. Western Electric manufacturing out on the east side was Mm -hmm. huge. Um, Westinghouse, Timken, Columbus Coated Fabrics. There were just a lot of manufacturing jobs in central Ohio. And you could see how the city was structured probably not by plan, just by you know, natural evolution. You know, the rich people lived right in the center of the city and then like the next row out where the um, you know the merchants and stuff maybe lived there. And then- in a big fat industrial belt. <laughs> and then there was, a, there was that <laughs> industrial belt and then you had that sea of houses that were built in places like Franklinton and Linden and so on that were for the factory workers. And it was a nice middle class neighborhood. Um, and even uh, segregation, of course, was very much present back then. Um, but you had that huge neighborhood that you know today is called Bronzeville, um, that was a very um, stable uh, middle-class black neighborhood um, in the city. Um, where you know a good friend of mine that grew up out there said, you know, in, in my neighborhood, you know, the doctors and the teachers and the lawyers and the policemen and the, everybody they were all black. because I didn't really know that there was a limit on my my future because everybody I saw in every role that I aspired to be was black. So um, there's a whole separate conversation about um, what it meant to tear that up. So um, Columbus, big industrial place, but it had this, this, you know, this area of poverty. And one of the interesting things that happened in the 60s when I was a kid was one, the notion of urban renewal, where there's a lot of federal monies fed into cities to try to do something about the slums um, in the cities. And then the interstate highway system happened at the same time. And so, what happened in many cities happened in my hometown, Charleston, West Virginia, happened mm-hmm. here. They ran the freeways right through the slums and displaced all those people and divided neighborhoods and all that good kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, Columbus was, you know, while all that stuff was going on, it was continuing to grow modestly. Uh, the school system, uh, again, Ohio's got this weird thing the school systems are community based, in West Virginia, they're county based. There's only 55 school systems in West Virginia. There's 600 in Ohio, yeah. which is a little bit nuts. Yeah. Um, but Columbus <coughs> was the was and still is the largest school district in Ohio. Uh, it, back then, it was considered one of the very best school districts in Ohio. It had about 120,000 students. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, 71. You say 110.
1: Yeah. Very very well respected school district. Um, and then um, this is when stuff starts to go weird. Um, in the late 70s, there was a um, Uh, a a desegregation suit filed in the federal court called Penny versus Board of Education um, that their claim was that the Columbus schools, even though they had no policy of segregation because the neighborhoods were segregated um, by policies like redlining and blockbusting and all that stuff that was going on the schools were de facto segregated and that needed to be fixed the judge, a local guy um, uh, ruled in uh, favor and ordered busing to correct that and so all the by 79 they said you got to be moving kids all around the city to make the um you know the racial uh balance in each school about the same you can black schools can white schools you've got to have about an equal
0: proportionality. You try to spread the education yeah. quality around that was the idea between the
1: it was is kind of that separate and equal wasn't working and that you really had no, of to, course uh, no and so But if you read um, Jacob's book um, and some of the interviews he did with the leaders of the black community, then that's not as clear. um, That there are people in the black community said, you know, hey, you know, East High School, which was you know a a very well-regarded high school, almost 100% black. um, There's a book called Something Tigers Have Given Us, where they were state basketball champions a couple times in a row. Uh, Very well-respected school and you know again the people went there said hey when I was there the you know the principal was black the student body president was black the home family was black you know the um the leadership of the entire school were, were black kids because it was a majority, uh, almost entirely black school after the desegregation those kids became a minority in every single school and there was never another black school president so again not my words that's Gregory's uh, Jacobs um observation so um you know, because we have all these school districts and all the choice people have within fairly close range, it immediately started a white flight to the suburbs. And um, that's when um, places like, if you think about it in the Hillary community, it's places like Gulfview Woods and the Glen and some of those neighborhoods begin to build. When you go around 270, there was all these developments that were being built in the late 70s, just to capture that outflow of people from Columbus schools um, into the suburban, suburban schools.
0: And So um, essentially moving out of one school district into another school district, right. but still in the outbound Columbus, parcel, and then potentially annexed in eventually to other suburbs proper. Yeah, so the
1: annexation thing, you know, I'm kind of skipping around the timeline here a little bit, but one of the, the other controllers is that when this water stuff went on because of the, you know, Erie Canal sewer and all that kind of stuff going on, when Columbus was given control, administrative control over the water system for the region, um, they put together, and this is Jim Rhodes was. was the, back in the 40s. Yeah, Jim Rhodes was the mayor of, of Columbus and he was followed by a guy named uh, Sensenbrenner. Jim Sensenbrenner, uh, I, I forget his first name. Uh, um, that they set up these water contracts so with the suburbs so that every suburb became an island with an annexation corridor between them. So for example, there is no place where a city of builder parcel touches a city of Dublin parcel there is an annexation corridor right through the middle of them that only Columbus can annex. Um, that's where Tuttle Mall is, for example, is in that corridor. Mm-hmm. And if you go around the city, Dublin doesn't touch Worthington. Worthington doesn't spokes touch west you know? Yeah, and um, they, they said, we well, don't want to let Columbus get um, encircled like Cleveland and Cincinnati have been. Let's keep these spokes available for annexation corridors so we can do that. So these, these water contracts are set up, so a, a suburb like Hilliard, Um, would be allowed to serve all of its current parcels plus a set of parcels that it would be allowed to annex and extend the water system to and then anything outside those those islands could only be annexed by by Columbus and um, and so you see that in Hilliard for example those first developments like um, Gulfview Woods that I mentioned that was annexed in the Columbus um, to provide water it was in the Hilliard School District. I've been in the Hilliard School District for you know 100 years, um, but it stayed in the city of Columbus. So along comes this you know desegregation ruling says we're gonna bust kids, and by the way, we're gonna bust them out of what we're gonna, the other thing we're gonna ask is the State Board of Education who controls school district boundaries. We're gonna ask them to realign school district boundaries with city boundaries um, so that all these people that are bailing out of the city, the Columbus schools, a guy named Jim Ebright, a friend of mine, um, and Columbus Schools was saying the way we stop this white flight is we just simply get the, the state board of education to realign these boundaries so that all these new neighborhoods like Gulfview Woods get brought, brought back brought in. Back into, they were never in Columbus Schools but they get brought into Columbus Schools because it was annexed into Columbus. I see. What's that happen? I can tell you I was living in Gulfview Woods we had one of the first 20 or 30 houses in Gulfview Woods. When that happened development stopped because mm-hmm. people said eh, what well, do you want to build a house here for? Um, well, it's just going to get it's sucked into the Change the Columbus scenery story.
0: you thought it was going to be.
1: Yeah, and so it just stopped. So who gets mad about that? Developers, right? Because they're making a pile of money on this yeah. migration to the suburbs. Yep. And uh, there ended up being a lot of fights and moratoriums where the you know, boundary movement was said. You know, we're not going to do this for a while. So we we'll sort something out. What they eventually sorted out was a win-win agreement, and the win-win agreement said, okay. Everything that's already developed in a suburban school district like Gulfview Woods for example will stay in a suburban school district There'll be certain other parcels around it. That'll be grandfathered. Oh, like well your neighborhood's in Missouri But if you think of the, the ones down by crossing elementary and stuff, that's all Columbus, right? That was grandfathered into that. Well, that could be annexed into Columbus, but stay in the school district and there's we're still some in some parcels but anything else after that that was undeveloped and annexed into Columbus would move to Columbus Schools. Um, big key there is undeveloped. So they wouldn't be moving any kids, right? It, it's, you go and buy a big farmland, no nobody lives on it. Um, Annex it into Columbus, it becomes Columbus Schools. And the great example of that around here is that big parcel that's between Avery and cosbury just north of Hayden Run that you may know is all up around the giant eagle that's all columbus schools Mm -hmm. and all those kids all the way over to centennial high school to to, to go to school from there
0: do you think that white uh the white flight you see the enrollment in columbus drop precipitously and never mind the the neighborhoods Mm -hmm. as you say like bronzeville and some of the other locations that were you'll have these concentrations of people that live in these neighborhoods because of factory work that drew them to these places or you know they have community support like you said doctors lawyers they have offices there they have a uh, community to serve there so that's there geographically that's built as a lived uh, process now when things get split up or when people pull their money out in essence what happened in White Flight then everyone starts making moves on these chessboards as you're indicating yep. And all these different players come to the table with all their different interests. And what, who, who has the loudest voice? Well, I mean, like you've said, uh, the city is, only, is the only one that can spur economic development. And ultimately, developers have their say in school board matters. They have their say in city development matters. And they have their say in, in turning farmland into into developed uh, developed uh, live in habitable areas, I guess I should say or useful infrastructure. So you know what's your what's your overall take is that was that a mortal wound or have the things that over the years followed on through that like say for example, as you say, people getting uh, their energy split in all these different directions. For example, the, the influence now of charters and the ability to move dollars around and have and have them be pulled out of neighborhoods and follow kids instead of be bound geographically. I mean, what's your take? It's a big question to ask, I know, and you're kind of moving this through the timeline as well. but I gotta know what do you see in the future for public education?
1: Yeah so you know, I've written about this um, so it's not like I'm um, are you still bra? I write stuff on my Facebook
0: Okay. Okay. Go ahead. the Go ahead. blog Sorry. I
1: don't do. So I've got a, a pretty radical view here. So my <clears throat> politics, I'm an independent, uh, so my, I tell people I don't want a party label that makes you think you know how I think. And so if you want to know how I think, let's have a conversation and I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it probably, some of my um, stands you would say are left, some of them you'd say are right. I'm mostly like a libertarian Probably as close as anything to a label Well there, um, a,
0: I've never been able to pin down A libertarian on what a li- real libertarian yeah, yeah. is So I'm sure there's a very Very right. so, range
1: So I won't take that
0: li- label, label either Right
1: um, But I, I, I make this comparison That I think um, We have said in this country for a long time That we, we don't want people to starve And to make sure that they don't We have programs where we collect taxes to, From people um, According to their Wealth uh, in general and we redistribute those taxes to people through things like the SNAP program uh, To make sure people can get through
0: social security
1: social security. I'm on social security. I'm on medicare all those things are good um So i'm not an anti-government program kind of person um But i'll make the observation that with the food um, Dimension We don't expect the government to run the food production operation um, and so in schools I think it's also reasonable to say we want our uh, we want everybody in this country to have a, a good education and we should be willing to collect enough taxes to make sure everybody can have a good education I'm not <coughs> sure and I'm, I'm gonna have people yelling at me for forever now because of this but um, again it's something I've written in my blog before I'm not sure it's necessary for the government to run the schools to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think um, one of the things I've said is I don't necessarily um, agree that uh, when people call school funding public money, I say, no, it's everybody's individual contribution to running this thing. And I'm not always happy that my money gets washed of all my beliefs before it gets spent. It gets turned into somebody else's beliefs. And um, so what I would prefer is to say, Let's make sure that there is enough tax collected um, that every kid can get a voucher. And then they can go spend that voucher in any accredited school that is being um, run by accredited individuals.
0: Accredited is a very, (laughs) and that's the thing I think a lot of people would say, maybe more from my side of, of the fence, where I say, Uh, We talked a lot about the reason that a lot of people left the South to come to the North was not just employment, but it was education, because in the South there was no school. There was no public education provision in the South. Uh, And a lot of the initial era of Reconstruction was trying to build a lot of that infrastructure. The way I think about public education is, just as it was a crime to take Columbus East, A fine institution with 100,000 enrollment and a lot of people putting their money, their pooled money and resources into an enterprise they largely lived around and participated in. Uh, I think that pulling in one direction around a geographic locale uh, provided a lot of focus and it provided a lot of interconnectivity. I worry that uh, accredited does a lot of lifting in this whole. Independent and distributed model. And I think with people in geographic locations pulling in any direction they choose, you lose a lot of unifying effectiveness when it comes to actual provision for everyone. Now, people can get sent the voucher. People can seek an institution. Are those institutions up to the standards of any public school right now? Some are. Some exceed it uh then there are others that do not and will not and aren't even set up with a mind to do that but rather to field a football team or to do something of that nature uh that will land you on a national news program right
1: we can go off on a lot of tangents here but when you talk about the football program um i remember back when earl bruce was the coach at the buckeyes and somebody he had um, Proposed that there be a major At Ohio State in professional sports mm. And um, Somebody asked him he goes, Well isn't it true that only you know, 5% of your players or whatever make it Into professional sports why there should there be a major In that he goes I don't know how many of the Fine arts
0: majors make it to Broadway Right <laughs> and well I can, I can tell you I can tell you who the highest paid uh, State employee is in almost every State in the it's union it's the football coach it's, it's the, the college sport. Football coach in right. the major college football right. University and then. so
1: um but you know the other comparison I'd make is that I, I, I hear people argue that well you need to have the public schools because parents aren't qualified to decide where the kids should go to school. I said, wait mm. a minute. Do they suddenly get incredibly smart when the kid graduates? Because you have free choice about where the kid goes to college mm. um, or trade school or whatever it is. So why shouldn't you give them that same choice? And I think people have there, there's a you know a notion that I love that says um, when you think about a a big state state change you know going from the kind of system we have now to the kind of system that I'm proposing you, you can envision what the end state is the hard thing is the transition the hard, the transition is incredibly complex and, and fraught with um, conflict and angst and, and, and so on but in my vision I see an end state when people say well then you end up with all these big beautiful schools like Bradley Darby and Davidson that empty out I said so, no maybe there's a new corporation forms because it was, it'll always be true that economies of scale are good. Um, that maybe there'll be a new, you know, corporation form or three new corporations form that each one of them will buy one of the schools and run it as a, maybe one of them's a STEM school, maybe one of them's an athletic school, maybe one of them's uh, agriculture school. I've got an old book, uh, it was an annual report from the school district from like the, I don't know, 20s or something like that. And, I, I, besides reading, writing, arithmetic, almost all the classes were agriculture, mm. and um, which is what you'd expect in a school, right? Side of Darby local school. Um, so, I just like colleges end up having. You know, if if you want to study engineering, you might go here. If you want to study um, medicine, you might want to go here. I, I'm not sure that um, there's not room for that kind of thing in secondary. In fact, there are. In primary and secondary education, those choices exist, but largely only for the rich kids. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm saying, why don't we create s- opportunities for the private uh, economy to figure out a better way to run schools, but not diminish the fact that um, we're going to deal with public funding?
0: Well, I think that as your. Uh, Colleague once pointed out I don't know how many or not your colleague I shouldn't say that Earl Bruce was a peerless uh, peerless professional <laughs> I was at the first ever John Cooper game and there was a bring back Bruce chant I, uh, I was 11 years old and I remember it very clearly <laughs> no he said uh, not many fine arts majors etc etc well I mean what are the what are the odds then that there will be a lack of provision in certain aspects of education that I think we could all agree are pretty critical. Or maybe that private corporations within the last year to six months have thought that they could get away with getting rid of entirely via uh, chat GPT. Um, I think the law profession right now is having a bit of an existential crisis uh, because it's largely a linguistics-focused uh, business, and these algorithms can and AI programs can... Uh, Six months from now, they can do two percent of what they did at the beginning, and they ruin yeah. themselves. But I think what I'm asking is, Paul, uh, public education has to serve everybody by its mandate. A private alternative to that would serve the profit motive, which would be which would be uh, who needs what done? And I agree that there there is a requirement for utility in society. I think that if there need to be more solar panels made, windmills, uh, if there need to be more tunnels dug, if there need to be more cars built, houses, whatever. I like the idea that uh, education could step in directly and say, hey, you want to learn how to do this? Come over here. Stop stop wasting your time doing things that you're mad about and you're going to lead to be unproductive yep. later in your life because you have trauma from it. <laughs> and come learn how to do something you want to do. I love that idea. And I think there's a role for that. Maybe in the, in your radical restructuring of education you go, this age to this age is full public this, and then earlier than graduating high school, you get to have more of a direction. You get to shift more into a private application or more into a different public application, kind of give people more control over the direction of their lives and their future within these overlying institutions. Yeah,
1: so I, I think it's a. Uh, it's probably a characteristic of a healthy democracy when um, those debates happen and that when the, when the conclusions when the resolutions are probably a hybrid of synthesis. a lot of synthesis of a lot of thoughts so yeah. I, I don't disagree with that I, I'm I'm a big believer in the invisible hand but the problem with the invisible hand is that sometimes it lags the market it almost always lags the market right well and, Adam and so, Smith,
0: I mean Adam Smith's understanding of it is different than a lot of how people represent it now yeah. I think that that's that's key as well because a capitalism driven by people, Over-financialized is not at all what his concepts of the the invisible hand of the market perception were. You know,
1: we're seeing pieces of that now, and and again, we're I'm kind of scattergunning on you here a little bit, but I'm um, doing it to you, so don't worry about it. The you know, when the Honda plant was built, for example, um, way out of Marysville, um, I I don't know this is a fact, but I've I've read this a few times that the the you know the, the standard kind of Detroit UAW auto plant would overstaff by like 20% or something because they needed to have enough people to run the line even if they had a lot of folks calling sick. So they said, okay, if we need 1,000 people on a shift, we're gonna schedule 1,200 or something to make sure that we got every spot on the assembly line field. Honda's approach was, as I understand it, was we're not gonna do that. We're just gonna require that if you're gonna work in this plant, you have to live within a 20-minute drive of the plant so that we can call you and you show up Mm. to fill a hole. Oh, conveniently, 20 minutes from that plan excluded all of the urban core of Columbus. And um, was that on purpose or just a standard practice? Well, they got caught on it, and again, the, the legend, I, I can't say I've read, read any authoritative report of this, but they said, okay, when we build our, we're building more plants, when we build those, we'll expand the drive area to be the county the plant's in and any adjacent county and the Fuhrer kind of went away. Except they built that plant out in Logan County, and so now Franklin County is not in adjacent County. Not the other <laughs> <laughs> direction. And, um, and so we see that kind of happening again with the Intel operation, and of course Honda's building the big battery plant down in Washington Courthouse. Um, there's other things going on. The, the very part of our community that we need to have jobs is that urban core community, um, and they can't get there. I talked to one of the leaders at Morpsey not too long ago during uh, the chamber luncheon and said, You know, I would suggest that one of the most important things Morpsey has to do right now is figure out how they're going to get people from Franklin and Linden to the Intel plant. Um, and she said, Yeah, they actually have been thinking about it. And said, I think you need, you know, it's a freeway with a bus lane on it that can run, you know, 80 miles an hour all the way to to Intel and it's 50 buses in the morning, 50 buses in the afternoon or whatever, and provide a lot of that. Um, then the challenge is, do the people who live in Franklin and London have the skills that Intel's looking for, which is kind of to your point. And it's the, you know, the invisible hand, Intel's gonna need to fill those jobs. Supposedly they came here because they believed they could fill those jobs. My belief is that very few of the people who do those jobs are gonna come from London, Franklin and so on. They're gonna be people moving to Central Ohio. Um, with the skills that they've learned someplace else to come here and work. Yeah.
0: Well, partner, we're getting close to an hour. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I'm not done yet. I no. know, <laughs> man. I know. I think we'll have you back to yeah, part uh, two. to go through, uh, you know, 90s to now. I think that would be kind of an interesting step through because if nothing else, it's only been accelerating uh, as uh, people are... Striving to hold on to what they have and build what they don't, they're pulling all the levers uh, to try to make sure that the sins of the past, uh, that to a greater or lesser degree sometimes still keep happening, uh, aren't uh, hamstringing the future. So, uh, Paul, thank you for coming in today and thank you for taking us on a whirlwind tour uh, through some of the development history of Columbus and the surrounding neighborhoods. Uh, You said you're no longer uh, writing blogs, but you are... Uh, posting on Facebook maybe we'll have you do a guest post or two for the Beacon uh, if we can afford you and uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep that offer open and I'd love to have you back again soon uh, maybe once uh, Phyllis feels a little better and Roger feels able to come out again we'll have everybody back together and we'll try again for, for that conversation I think that could be a lot of fun too but uh, for today, I think we'll wrap it there. Call it done. Kevin, do you have any? Uh, oh, just bits and to end. Pieces? No, uh, thank you for coming in, Paul. I learned a few new things about uh, the educational history in the state of Ohio and about West Virginia. So, just to end on a more personal note, my mom's from West Virginia. She grew up down in Nicholas County. Uh, Richwood is the town. Up um, uh, right. Summersville. Um I was in Somersville last week, so we went to visit uh, my. My uncle, my mom's brother, was here. He lives lives in England. A
1: good West Virginia legend you have to ask her about, this is a real quick one, is that when the Corps of Engineers builds dams, as they have around the country, Hmm. the norm is that they name it after the closest town. And when they built the Summersville Dam, when they decided they were going to build a dam, where the closest town was called Gat. Gat Dam. (laughs) (laughs) So they made it Summersville Dam. Live with it, live (laughs) with it, live with it.
0: Okay, uh, everybody, real quick, I would love for everybody to become a subscriber to the Hilliard Beacon. Uh, I think we recently proved our benefits uh, and our style benefits by holding back, letting Kevin take an extra day or two to get some more background, quote, and information, and that article has just crested 3,000 views, uh, making it our most viewed article on the Hilliard Beacon Substack. stack So, uh, Paul is a subscriber, and we're happy to have him uh, as a member, and we want you too, so please... Uh, take every opportunity to uh, subscribe and support our work we couldn't do it without you and we could not have done what we have done so far without you so thank you very much and until next time goodbye thank you